Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 104, Working Against the Current. Today, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Drew Youngdike. Drew is the Director of Conservation Partnerships for the National Wildlife Federation Great Lakes Regional Center. He's also on the board of the Northern Michigan Chapter of the Surfrider Foundation, 2% for conservation, the Pigeon River Country State Forest Advisory Council, and is a member of multiple conservation and environmental organizations. When he's not doing all of that, he lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan with his wife, Michelle, and son Noah, and he spends his time fishing, paddling, camping, surfing, cross-country skiing, trail riding, hiking, hunting, skateboarding, and training in his garage gym. Whew, Drew, that's a lot, buddy. What are we going to talk about today? There's so many different options, right? All those things I just listed. Uh, we're actually going to talk about a great film uh, against the current, where we're going to talk about uh, the issue of invasive carp and the dangers uh, that it poses to the Great Lakes regions and the Great Lakes themselves. So we're going to listen into Drew tell, sort of giving us a, a brief overview of the film. Uh, he's also going to Uh, sort of give us the history of invasive carp, where they came from, how they got into our uh, rivers and streams and lakes. Uh, And we're also going to talk about how we could, you know, what the film talks about, how we can try to stop their advance, uh, how we can try to start limiting their numbers and reducing their numbers where they're already there. Uh, And then I'm going to give him a pulpit moment at the end to talk about something that is very important to him, very important to myself as well. Uh, so make sure you listen into the end for that. And with no further ado, that was a long intro because Drew has so much going on in his life. Let's just get right into that conversation. On the line with us today via the wonderful interwebs is Drew Youngdike. Drew, how are you doing today? Doing great, Jason. Thank you for having me on. You know, as we talked about here in the little bit of the the pre-conversation before I hit the record button, um, it's nice to finally get to meet you, you know, sort of face-to-face, as face-to-face as we can get in Michigan to PA. But, um, you know, we've been uh, sort of seeing each other from afar on Facebook uh, through 2% for Conservation. And you're a board member for 2% among some other ones, as everyone heard and in that intro, you do a lot of stuff for conservation. Uh, two questions from that. One, how do you find the time? And two, why do you spread yourself out to all those different organizations? Like <laughs> so, so thin. So, um, well, part, part of it is, is my career is, is working for nonprofit conservation and environmental organizations. Um, that's my field. That's, that's what I do professionally. And, and I think it's uh, important to support the partners that we work with. Um, and there's a part of me too, where having worked for a few different organizations and seeing the way that they work 
I see what they do in the field on a day-to-day basis. And, and so I feel like it's my responsibility to support the work that they're doing. Um, and, and the way that I do that is I base it off the, the outdoor recreation activities that I do. Um, if I do an outdoor recreation activity, I try to find the conservation environmental nonprofit that does good work and, you know, on behalf of that user group for the resource that that activity relies upon. And um, it's, it's something that's just become a habit. Um, and it's fun. I get, I get to meet good people. I feel like uh, when you get involved in organizations like that, um, you know, if, if you're involved in Surfrider, for instance, you're going to meet the, the surfers that care about keeping the, the lakes and the oceans clean. Um, if you get involved with, you know, Trout Unlimited, for instance, you're going to meet the anglers that care about st- keeping the streams clean. Um, and, and that's important to me. You know, if I get involved with backcountry hunters and anglers, I'm going to meet the, the hunters who care about public land. And so I meet people who have the same type of conservation ethic that I, that I do. And so I, I like surrounding myself with those people too. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Yeah. You get tax time and I'm doing the taxes in my house and, you know, just sort of totaling stuff up, taking inventory of, you know, where did our money go this past year? Um, Cause it never seems like it's enough, no matter what, what it is you're doing. And um, just this past year, I realized that I, I was a member of 12 different conservation organizations, which surprised me because I only volunteer for two, maybe three in a year, but I'm a member of, of a bunch, right? Like I'm a member of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. I've been elk hunting one time in Montana, and I don't know that I'll be going back anytime soon since I have this, you know, young son at home. Uh, so, so it's like, you know, when I told my wife that and, and talked to some people about that, they're like, you know, why? Why do you just give your $35 if you're not going to volunteer? I mean, for me, it's because then I'm one more number, one more member that when that organization says to a politician, to, you know, uh, a business, like we want you to do this and we're this many members strong, that's one more person is the way that I look at it. I, I agree with their mission. So I'm going to give them a little bit of money for, you know, to, to help support what that mission is. Uh, so when, when you're deciding, you know, you already sort of mentioned this, when you're deciding what organizations you're going to support. It's based on the outdoor rec activities you do. Um, what are you seeing as far as like an, a shift in the interest of those outdoor rec activities, right? And not just necessarily from you, but sort of like from everybody. Yeah. Well, I, I do base it on the things that I do and not, not that by doing that, I like I do, it's not like I do so many things that I'm going to cover all the different conservation uh, areas that need work. I just think that if everybody does that, we'll have a pretty good mosaic doing, you know? Um, I don't really grouse hunt much anymore. And and I have in the past, and, and I'm not a current member of Rough Grouse Society, although I think they do good work. Um, but I think, boy, if you grouse hunt, you should go join them, you know? And, and so I think if, if we do the things that, um, that, that correspond to the things that each of us do. If everybody does that, boy, we'll, we'll really have this, this covered and get a lot of good work done. Um, but yeah, my, my conservation interest or my recreation interest has shifted. Um, and, and it's, it's really based on, uh, like you, I have a, a young son and the, the time that I have, um, is different than before he was born. And it's different. And when I think about what I want to spend my time doing, um, I want to spend my time doing things that he can do with me. Um, and, and so that's 
gone away from, you know, backcountry bow hunting uh, to fly fishing and uh, surfing. <laughs> so doing, doing things like that, doing things on the water. Um, what, what I see as a shift in overall outdoor recreation um, is, is we're seeing more people just get out and, and want to be outside. We're, you know, during the pandemic, we saw a little bit of a bump um, kind of across the board in hunting and fishing licenses, but it was also part of a bigger bump in people just wanting to go out to the local park, um, hike around, uh, go to a beach, those were all packed. Trails were packed. So everybody just wants to get outside. And, and I think that um, as conservation organizations, there's a lot of things that people are doing that really don't have, I've noticed, a, a kind of dedicated user group conservation uh, organization that's kind of harnessing that, that influx of people getting outdoors and channeling that into a voice for, you know, for instance, the trails or the things that they're doing. So I see both the uh, a little bit of a shift and just more people getting outside and not maybe not necessarily doing something that's so, um, um, you know, hardcore that there's a dedicated user group to pr protecting the activity itself. But boy, there's a lot of people getting outside that United could have a real powerful voice for the places that they're that they're getting outside to that, um, you know, maybe maybe aren't being tapped right now. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. It, it's awesome to see all these people enjoying the outdoors, but part of me really hopes that every time someone gets outdoors for the, the first time or the first time in a long time or whatever, all of a sudden they decide, Hey, I really like hiking. I'm going to start hiking now. I would love to see them take that newly discovered passion and say, okay, I'm going to find an organization that supports what I want. Right. And then give back. And, you know, whether that's in whatever way they can, for some people that's financially, for some people that's time, for some people that's, you know, they have the ability to do something, right? They have certain gifts or whatever, um, you know, that they work, you know, how they work or whatever it is that they can give, you know, back somehow. I, I would love to see that happen more often because like you said, if we could get, you know, everyone that does a certain activity involved with a similar conservation organization like imagine all the good we could do right like i think of the the national deer association how many people in our country hunt white-tailed deer or mule deer uh if those millions of people would all become members of the nda their reach would be so much bigger than what it currently is you know it's just i mean it's important that we try when we see other people i think in my opinion when we see other people participating in the in an outdoor recreation that maybe we are that we encourage them to also search out some conservation orgs to give back to yeah i i, I think so too um although you know I'm, I'm at the point now where because i've been involved in different conservation organizations for you know i was not, I used to be on the board of the michigan chapter bha two percent for conservation now that kind of thing um I'm kind of attuned to that, right? So when I picked up surfing at age 40, <laughs> uh, first thing I did was 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 join you know join Surfrider, and um, you know, I've, I've started volunteering for the the board of the Northern Michigan chapter. But I've been doing different outdoor recreation activities for a very long time. Um, I'm you know being a professional in the field, I'm aware of these different organizations and what they do. I think for a lot of people that are just getting out, it's it's going to take some time. 
you know, for, for somebody who just, you know, realized there was a, a state park nearby that they could get some social distance in during the pandemic, um, they, they might not know yet. And, and they might not have that developed passion and interest yet to flip it around and, and give back. So I think with some people, I think when you just start out something like that, like you're still learning how to do it. You're still figuring out if this is a thing that you want to spend a lot of time in. So I understand that. I think one thing too, you know, organizations, when they, when they take care of the thing that they say they're taking care of, it works out when sometimes they, how do you put it? They take controversial positions um, that can turn off some of the new folks that are coming in. You know, you have new people coming into the outdoors. It's not the same good old boys club that maybe, you know, like deer camp was, um, you know, for our grandpas back in the day. And when the, when the hunt, you know, a hunting conservation organization starts talking like the good old boys club, so a lot of those new people, I can, I can tell you to go join that organization, but when they go to join that organization and, and they see some of those, um, some of what the members are saying, what happens when you show up to a meeting, what's said in the comment section, what's, what's put out by, by the members of the organizations. And um, with, I think, some of the shift in, in who's getting outdoors, that's not going to go well. You know, and so before I introduce somebody to an organization, um, I want I want to make sure it's in general. I want people to join the, the organization that corresponds to what they do, but I'm also not going to recommend they join an organization unless they're they're doing good, <laughs> the right thing. You know, um, they're they're taking care of this brand that we have as hunter conservationists, and and they're upholding that. Yeah, that's a good point. That's definitely something. To, that's a, a good takeaway from that, you know, and, you know, there's a little bit of that flip side too. Sometimes you get these organizations that realize that some of the new members coming in are a little bit different in their mindset than as you put the good old boy club that, that was there and they start shifting their message. And sometimes, you know, those, um, you know, years long members decide, you know what, I don't align with this anymore. And, and sometimes they leave you know? Yep. Um, so yeah, it's, a, it's, it's tough, right? I mean, that's, it's a whole thing with America. There's so many different types of people, you know, you're, oh, yeah. Yeah, there's, you know, you're not going to have, you're, you're not going to have one organization that fits everyone, which is why we have so many different organizations out there. So, yep. uh, you know, I would argue that every single person in our country can find an organization um, that aligns mostly with what they're looking for. It's just a matter of finding that one, which sometimes can be tough, especially like as you, as you said, if it's if you're new to it and you've never really been a part of an organization like that, you know, how do you find it? You know, which one's going to be right? You know, and of course, you know, you look online, you're always going to see a lot of bad stuff being said online. That's just the nature of, <laughs> of the internet these days. Um, but one of the good things about the internet is that it brings together people like you and me. And in ways that you don't necessarily foresee happening. And when it brought us together, um, you know, I, I actually had gotten rid of my Facebook profile uh, for years and years and then um, was volunteering to be part of the uh, regional committee for 2%, which you were as well. And so we we're going to do that via Facebook and all that stuff sort of fell apart. But we were, I kept my profile. We, you know, still remained friends on Facebook. And I came across 
Against the Current, a film, a wonderful, wonderful film. Um, can you just give me the 15-second brief overview? What is Against the Current? Against the Current tells the story of the issue of invasive carp from a national perspective, from the point of view of scientific, tribal, uh, hunter, angler, tourist, and uh, fisheries um, perspectives. Um, and, and kind of what's different about it is you've probably seen a lot of invasive carp films um, with fish jumping. You know, it might be the, you know, the, the boats chasing them, or I think they have like on the Illinois River, like the redneck fishing tournament where they wear helmets and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and usually they're told from either the perspective of what's happening on the, on the rivers in the South where they already exist, or it's told from the perspective of the threat they, they pose to the Great Lakes. The solutions to keeping uh, invasive carp out of the Great Lakes and reducing their numbers down South are, are both federal. And so we wanted to tell the story of the, the whole story, the, the impact both down south and the threat to up north, and not just from a fishing perspective, but all these different um, interests that they are either already impacting or would impact if they got into the Great Lakes. Um, by doing so, we're able to get reach a lot of different audiences across a wide swath of the country. Um, this, this film went out on uh, different PBS stations across the country. Um, as well as, you know, on, online and, you know, where we're able to promote, of course, being in the middle of pandemic, we weren't hosting screenings or anything like that. Um, but but it, it, for us, at least at National Wildlife Federation, it, it served the purpose that we want. Um, the, the Brandon Road Lock and Dam program got approved by Congress a few months after it was released. Of course, it wasn't just because of the film, but the film was part of the push that helped that. So Congress, and this was a divided Congress, approved the Brandon Road Lock and Dam plan to keep them out of the Great Lakes, and they approved uh, million or tens of millions of dollars to uh, go to uh, commercial fisheries to fish their numbers down down south. Um, and, and so that national approach um, is what we were pushing for. It's why we wanted to, to make this film and um, had, had the desired effect. Now, the reason that you like what you saw is because of the filmmaker that we hired. And so I got to give a big shout out to Jordan Brown of Jordan Brown Productions. He is a producer from Michigan Outdoors TV. We worked with him on this film. We worked with him also on Northwoods Unleaded that we did the year before about hunting and fishing with non-lead ammunition. He's just a terrific filmmaker, uh, captures great footage, edits it together well. Um, you know, being a, I'm kind of like the executive producer, the project manager. Um, but when you hire him to, to work with, um, it's, it's hard to have a product not turn out exactly the way you want it. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a striking film. Um, I, I want to come back to, to both programs that you sort of talked about there. Um, but before that, I feel like we got to give like a little bit of primer about what are invasive carp. Um, you know, I'm from Pennsylvania, southwest Pennsylvania. As far as I know, it hasn't made it up the Ohio River up past Pittsburgh yet. Um, they haven't. Um, so what is invasion, invasive carp? Why are they invasive, right? Where did they, where they come from? 
right? I mean, we're a global economy, right? So uh, I'm sure came somehow, but like, how, why, why are we dealing with this? Sure. So invasive carp re- refers to four different species of, of invasive carp. <laughs> um, grass carp, black carp, silver carp, and big head carp. Um, they're invasive species um, because of the impact that they have on native species uh, here. They're, they're, not, um, they're not native to North America. And so they were imported originally from, from different parts of Asia um, by usually Arkansas fish farmers back in the 60s and 70s. What they do is, especially the, the big head and silver carp, is they clean out retention ponds. They're filter feeders. Um, and so they brought them in to clean out their retention ponds. You had floods in the 70s, and then you really had even more floods, especially like in the early 90s. And during those floods, they escaped. Um, and they got into the wild. They started making their way up the Mississippi River and all of its tributaries. Um, and what makes them invasive is the impact that they have because they're filter feeders. They consume large amounts of uh, phytoplankton and kind of the base level of the food chain. Um, they starve out then all of the fish above them, you know, above that in the food chain, the forage fish, the, the predator fish that we like to fish for. Um, you know, they start out smallmouth bass, that kind of thing. Um, and I guess the way that I like to describe them is they're kind of like a, a wedding crasher who just like cleans out the buffet before they call the first table, you know? <laughs> that's, um, that's a good, that is a colorful way to put it. I like it. So, so they made, they've made their way up the Mississippi river system, including like into tributaries, like, and, um, um, Barkley Lake. Um, Lake Barkley, uh, Kentucky Lake in Tennessee, and they're kind of at the gates of the Great Lakes um, because they've made their way up through the Illinois River and the Plain River as well. And so right at Chicago, there's a series of locks and dams that artificially connect Lake Michigan to that river system. And so we've also then been looking for ways to keep them from getting through those locks and dams uh, into Lake Michigan. I've been working on this in some form or fashion, literally since law school in like 2010. I did my my upper level uh, kind of like writing requirement for, for law school on, on the lawsuits that a lot of the Great Lakes states filed when they tried to sue Illinois to shut down those locks to keep invasive carp out of Lake Michigan back in, I think it was 2010. And uh, in, in, in throughout my career, whichever organization I've worked for, I have worked on this issue from an advocacy perspective. So um, you know, making this film with my colleague Mark Smith and and getting to the point where we actually have a a solution approved to be built that hasn't been built yet um, to keep them from getting into the Great Lakes um, really means a lot because it's something I've been working on in some form of fashion for over a decade now. So, so to be clear, they have not as as far as we know, they have not made it into any of the Great Lakes as of today. Right. Uh, well. Silver and big head carp have not. There, it, there are pockets of grass carp in Lake Erie um, that have all stages of reproduction, um, like around the Maumee River. Uh, grass carp have a different impact. They, they more, um, well, they're called grass carp because they, they eat lots of grasses, right? So they're, they're marsh fish and, and lowland fish, and they really put a hammer, though, on wetland habitat. 
So they have as much of a negative impact on wetland habitat, for instance, for waterfowl um, as they do for other fish species as well. They're in some parts of Lake Erie, not in large numbers. But um, when you think of the jumping fish, you're probably you're thinking of silver carp. You know, these things can get up to 60 pounds and they launch out of the water when they're disturbed, not just by uh, boat motors, but if you saw the film by paddles as well. Um, and so they're, they're in addition to kind of hammering the 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 aquatic ecosystem for the fish that you want to catch while you're out there, they may you may have 60 pound projectiles flying around your head. Um, and that's why we don't want them in, in our Great Lakes. Yeah, I mean, that <laughs> that it's amazing to see. I mean, just an eruption of these huge fish. I mean, even the ones that I mean, really you get a 20 pound fish, you know, jumping out of the air or jumping out of the water into the air as you're traveling down on a boat, like hits you in the chest. It, it's going to hurt. Um, it, I mean, is that the reason why like everyday fishermen aren't? trying to fish for these? I mean, I feel like, I feel like most fishermen are a lot like a lot of hunters. Like if I, Hey, I like the fish. These fish are just reproducing like crazy. Let's catch. This is great. Right. Like it's sort of like the wild hog thing in, in Texas. Like, Oh, look at the abundance we have. Why? <laughs> I mean, I know that they're invasive and they're bad for, for the ecology, but why aren't just everyday fishermen just like, yeah, this is awesome. I want to catch this fish. You know, they're, they're not great hook and line fish. Um, they're, they're, they're bottom filter feeders. So mainly they eat phytoplankton, these little, you know, bits, um, at, at the bottom, they're not going for the insects that you're imitating. They're not going generally for the minnows that you would be imitating. Um, now that doesn't mean that they won't. A couple of the guys that I talked to that were, that were in the film have caught them on lures. They've caught them on flies, but it's really kind of like an accidental bycatch. It's more like they're, they're trolling back and the, the carp are just so thick that it happens to snag one in the mouth, you know? Um, but it's, it's, they're not really going to go after a, a, a fly or lure normally um, that in a way that would make them a, a good sport fish, you know, in the way that bass, you know, or, or trout or my favorite Northern pike would, you know? Okay. That makes sense. That, that makes sense then. All right. So we need to block them from getting into, the Great Lakes. You mentioned new legislation passed, new project, hopefully commencing soon, right? Um, it, yeah. It's, so the, it's this is the Brandon Road Lock and Dam. It's 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 on about fifty miles south of Chicago, and there's an existing lock and dam there, um, and and there are a few electric barriers in this waterway system, um, but we keep finding fish on the wrong side of those electric barriers. Uh, in 2017, a silver carp was only, you know, a few miles from Lake Michigan. So we know that those electric barriers on their own aren't foolproof. So the Army Corps of Engineers has proposed a project to re rebuild this lock and dam at Brandon Road in Joliet, Illinois. And what they'll do then is build an engineered channel. Within that engineered channel, they'll have an electric barrier. They'll have a, a what they call like a bubble barrier of bubbles of water that go up that provide both a visual, um, a, a feel, and a sound deterrent. They're actually going to use dedicated sound deterrents where they install like speakers in this engineered channel and blast, um, whether it sounds or maybe they're even trying out different versions of like music 
that deter uh, carp. But you got to think the same thing that makes a silver carp jump out of the water when it hears a boat motor and those vibrations in the water, they're trying to use that same trigger for them to find a frequency that will deter those particular fish. Um, and then it's also going to have a flushing lock. So let's say that some, they actually make it all that way into the actual lock, all the water that's in the lock when the barge or the boat is in that lock is going to get flushed back out. So right now they're in the engineering and design phase. Congress has approved the project. The one thing that we're trying to do though is, is try to get it fully federally funded. Um, the reason being is that, you know, right now it's a partially federally funded, I think it's 6535 federal and the local sponsor, which is the state of Illinois. While this project is in Illinois, remember these things came from Arkansas. They came up through all the different states in between them. They're spreading out to other states. It's all the other Great Lakes states um, that will benefit from this being built. So when you think about the entire swath of where invasive carp are, where they came from, where we're trying to keep them out, this is not an Illinois 35% uh, problem. This is a fully national problem. And so the solution ought to be fully federally funded um, so that that burden isn't on the state of Illinois, which by the time we actually get to build it, I'm not sure if they're gonna be able to afford that cut of theirs anyways. So right now they're in pre-engineering uh, design that should take a couple of years and then they can start building it. Um, in the meantime, though, well, it's going to be a few years before this is completed. There's still lots of monitoring, response, um, you know, in, in all the different possible connections to the Great Lakes. They're still employing contract uh, commercial fishermen to fish down um, invasive carp populations so that, you know, they're not pressing their own populations further north. So there's a lot of interim measures that are constantly being done by, for instance, the Illinois DNR, Kentucky DNR, Tennessee DNR. Um, the US Geological Survey especially does a ton of work with monitoring, testing out new cart deterrent methods, tagging and radio, you know, radio collaring, basically black carp and that kind of thing. And all that is funded usually through like the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, which is a separate funding pool. So we always advocate for that funding too, because that's what keeps them out in the meantime. All right, so the general fisherman doesn't like to fish for, for carp because they're bottom feeders. So how does commercial fishing work? And then let's say you catch, you know, a thousand pounds of carp, what are you gonna do with it, right? Um, I feel like, I feel like the general fisherman that just sort of catches it by catch. If it doesn't taste good, they're just sort of going to be like, oh, this is a bad fish and throw it up on the bank. We don't want thousands and thousands of pounds of, of the king fish either. So what, what's the what's the plan? How does that commercial fishing work? Right now, a lot of it gets used as fertilizer, but actually they they actually do taste good. So they're trying to develop markets. Um, to, to be able to, you know, sell them as, as food. Um, I've had them um, kind of ground down and, and made into like a, uh, a cracker and dip. Um, and it was actually really good. <laughs> so um, there's different things that they can do. I mean, they have to develop a market. Um, one of the things they're trying is renaming it like silver fin. So maybe it's more palatable to consumers. It gets used as fertilizer right now, but because there isn't much of a market, part of the funding that we try to get Congress to do is actually to incentivize by actually paying extra money per pound to the commercial fishermen to make it worth their while to do it. Um, 
you know, they use nets and that kind of thing. Some of the agencies will use a thing called a unified method, which is kind of like taking a lake, dividing it into quadrants, um, using sound and nets and that kind of thing to clear out one part of the lake in quadrants, kind of herd all of the, the carp into one small little quadrant into a net and then remove them that way. And they've been able to use that to remove you know, just like, like ridiculous amounts of carp, um, where you might not even have realized that they were in some, you know, little like, uh, side channel pond, you know, off the, off the Missouri or off the, uh, Mississippi river, for instance. Um, so, so, so what you're saying is we're going to start seeing some new meat eater fishing episodes where Steve's <laughs> talking up how carp is the, the new fish that everyone needs to go out and, and get and, cook up and and eat yeah you know that that would make a good uh das boat <laughs> wouldn't it <laughs> as as long as whoever's on the boat's wearing their helmets when they're when they're traveling <laughs> to their spot yeah um yeah that would be a very good das boat so all right i want to make sure that we're that we're hammering this part home and you've talked about this already a little bit I want you to really go into detail, like hardcore, what the impact is for these invasive carp, right? Like you said that they're eating what the feeder fish eat, that the predator fish that we like eat, right? Or they're eating grass and and taking out wetlands and as far as uh, grassland carp is. I mean, let's sort of, I want you to look in the, in your magic, magic crystal ball you got in front of you. Let's say we don't get ahead of this. They get into, they get everywhere, right? Give me the doomsday worst case scenario that can happen 50 years from now if we can't get these carp under control. Yeah, well, well, luckily I don't, I don't have to guess because we have, um, we have scientific studies that have complex modeling that is peer reviewed uh, that has actually looked at this question and. What, what they see is actually that they'll be able to survive in the Great Lakes, um, especially within the near shore areas. They'll be able to make their way within about seven miles of the coast. They'll have enough habitat and food to be able to kind of move around. Um, they spawn in, in river systems with the right kind of current. And they found that those river systems exist in enough places, you know, that flow into the Great Lakes that they'll be able to make their way around the 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 bay, the shallow bays places like green bay saginaw bay uh, lake erie that's where they're going to thrive and so you think about what are the fish that people like to catch there perch walleye um, those species and so they did computer modeling of what would happen to those species and depending on how many got in and when they got in and how quickly they reproduce there will just be less of those species to catch from the angler's perspective um, there'll be fewer perch. Um, what they're seeing already in, in rivers in Indiana, where they've already gotten in, if you watch the film, is in places where there's smallmouth bass, where they fish for a long time. They're, they're just not there. It doesn't mean necessarily that their numbers are overall depleted, but maybe they moved up. Um, what, what they really see is a decrease in the biodiversity of, of those river systems. So let's say you had a river system in Indiana that let's say maybe it had, you know, just, just ballpark like 20 different species that you could catch. After invasive carp get in and are in there for a few years, suddenly 
there's only maybe five of those species that you can catch in any numbers. Now, one of those species actually might see a bump in population because it has less competition with those other 15 that you're not seeing anymore. So sometimes you'll see modeling that will say, well, actually in this lake, walleye numbers might increase, or in this lake, bass numbers might increase. But that's because bass were competing with 20 other species, and now they're only competing with five. But in some of those places, invasive carp have occupied up to 90% of the biomass of a given river system. You know, so that's really what it does. Let's say you like to go out and, I don't know, I like to go out and catch, uh, you know, bass, but maybe I'll catch a bluegill and a green ear sunfish. Um, maybe a pumpkin seed, I'm really hoping, you know, to target some northern pike, but there's crappie in there too. You know, there's just a lot of different things that I want to be able to catch there. Now, maybe that's just a largemouth lake with a lot of invasive carp and fewer largemouth. And you don't know where they are because every time the, the, the big head carp move around, they push the, the bass off their beds. And now you can't reliably go back and target them where, where they were. So I don't know, like to make it really simple, they just really mess up the fishing. Yeah, I mean, is, is that because they're like we don't have fish to eat those fish, right? Like our wouldn't you think like our predator fish, whenever these invasive carp are small, they're they're going to eat that fish. Like, why why doesn't that happen? I'm I'm sure they they eat a few, but they reproduce so quickly and they get so big. They like the numbers that they occupy is is just mind boggling. You know, it's not a, a solitary fish or two. You know, it's it's a lot of them once they fully take over an area. Um, when we were on Kentucky Lake, we were, we were fishing. We didn't catch any fish by the way. And, and, you know, I'm not a very good angler, so I'd like to blame it purely on the big head carp, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but we were actually going over kind of Kentucky Lake is a, a, an old river that was, you know, dammed up and, and flooded out. And so we were following the old river channel and you just see blip, 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 blip. And that, that those were, those were uh, big head carp. And, and they just occupied like entire stretches where they just carpeted the entire bottom of that channel. Um, and then we'd see them just kind of swimming off, you know, kind of by the boat, kind of eerie looking almost. So that's the big head carp. When we were in um, West Lafayette, Indiana, off the, off the Wabash River, they were literally jumping. There were so many of them. We turned the motor on, just drove around this little reservoir that was right off the river. Um, and they were hopping like popcorn. Uh, one of them jumped in the boat, just about took my legs out. Um, you know, it was probably a 30 pound fish and that was one of the smaller ones. And these things were popping out of the water, like popcorn, um, paddled Don, Don Cranfield, who's part of the Driftwood Outdoors crew was, was in his canoe and they were just popping around him. He's kind of used to it. So he's got, <laughs> he'd slap his paddle down and fish would jump out for the next five minutes. It, it was just surreal. I can't, I can't even imagine that. Um, all right. So for anyone that, that's interested in the film and it, and if you're listening to this, you should be interested in the film. The film's awesome. Um, there's going to be a link right down in uh, the episode details. So you can check it out there. Uh, before we get to what I'm going to call your pulpit moment, where I'm going to give you some space to talk about something that is extremely important. Um, I first want to ask like, how can people, help like what can the average person do to try to help the battle against invasive carp 
Sure. Well, I mentioned that we want federal, uh, full federal funding uh, to make sure that this Brandon Road Lock and Dam project actually gets built. Um, the really simple thing is to call your Congress person or, and or senator, call them both, and tell them that uh, the Brandon Road project to keep, or, sorry, keep invasive carp out of the Great Lakes needs to be full federal funding. Um, that's the way to make sure that it gets built. And, you know, we don't, we don't get to the point where we can start construction and, you know, Illinois can't pony up, you know, a third of it, which they shouldn't have to do really. Um, the, the other thing is make sure that, that you're not doing the small things that might inadvertently transfer them. You know, when we were in the, in West Lafayette, um, when we pulled the boat out, there were a couple little minnows and we washed the boat off, but there are a couple little invasive carp, silver carp minnows um, that could have, tra you know, if we didn't wash the boat off, could have been stuck to the boat. If that would have been transferred into a different water body, that could have spread, you know, that that into a different water body. And so washing your boat, doing the, doing the type of things that are basic to keeping any invasive species out of a different water body. Wash your boat, wash your waders. If you collect um, bait, only use that bait in that water body. Don't, don't transfer bait from one, you know, collect it in one body, water body, especially if it's a water body in an area where invasive carp, you know, already occupy. Don't collect bait there and transfer it to another water body because that's how they get spread too. Um, so that's the thing that, that your average uh, angler can do. But really the most effective thing is to use your voice and uh, call your congressman person, call your senator and tell them full federal funding for the Brandon Road Project and also thank them for already approving the Brandon Road project. So they've already approved this project. We just wanted to adjust the funding so that it, it can actually get built. It, that's great advice to, to wash your stuff. That's, um, that's something that I don't know how many people think about, you know, and, and as someone who's not a hardcore angler myself, I don't know how much I would think about that. Um, but that, that's a great piece of advice. And yeah, I, I will echo what you said about calling your congressman or your, your U.S. Senator, um, let them know that this, the funding of this bill is important to you. And of course, be, be polite, be nice, and thank them for uh, passing it to begin with. Uh, and I would echo, echo also that, um, yes, you can call the, or yes, you can email them, um, or you can write them a letter. But it seems, and I have been told in, you know, during some of the phone calls I have made on other subjects that phone calls tend to hold the most weight. Uh, you may not, I, I, let me rephrase, you 99% of the time will not actually talk to your congressman or your senator. You will talk to a staff member, but those staff members tend to place phone calls higher on the priority list than emails and letters. So um, don't be afraid to make that quick five minute phone call. That would be great. Uh, all right, so here's your pulpit moment. moment. Okay, this is the first official pulpit moment on the Conservation Unfiltered podcast, and I'm giving it to you because uh, this is something you indicated you want to talk about, and this is something that I have called uh, my congressman and senator about, uh, Recovering America's Wildlife Act. So the floor is yours. Speak to your heart's content. All right. We need to pass the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. And for those who haven't already heard about it, the Recovering America's Wildlife Act is an expansion of the idea that, that we started back with Pittman Robertson, really, 
Um, this specific idea came about in 2015 with a blue ribbon panel on wildlife conservation that included uh, Jeff Crane from Congressional Sportsman's Foundation and included my boss, Colin O'Mara with National Wildlife Federation and uh, Johnny Morris with Bass Pro Shops and, and a lot of other really smart folks. And what they were trying to solve is what do we do about the wildlife crisis of all of the species that are on this, I would say mostly non-game species, but are on the different state species of greatest conservation need. It's actually about a third of all the species in America. So a third of all of the species in America are on these state lists of at greater risk for being threatened or extinct. We're, this doesn't mean the endangered species list. And so what this idea is, let's take those species that are struggling. They're not endangered yet. Once they get endangered, if they get listed on the Endangered Species Act, there is a whole slew of emergency room procedures that have to go in place. Let's give them the preventative care they need now to keep them out of the emergency room. Let's recover them before they get to that place. What we've done a really good job of since 1937 in the passage of the Pittman-Robertson Act is we have done a really good job of recovering the game species that we hunt for. Um, since the Dingle-Johnson Act, we've, we've done a pretty good job of, of recovering most of the species that, that we fish for, right? Um, and that was in 1950. You know, we have these, these existing streams of funding uh, from license sales, uh, for hunting and fishing licenses, from excise taxes on firearms and ammunition, hunting gear, fishing gear, where hunters and anglers have, have paid the bulk of this conservation that has mostly through these you know, uh, wildlife agencies mostly gone to benefit the species that we hunt and fish for. Of course, habitat is habitat, so there are ancillary benefits to, to other species as well. But for the species that are struggling, there hasn't been the dedicated funding to do the types of habitat projects and species recovery projects um, to get a lot of these non-game species on the right road. So the way that I look at this is we have said for a long time, as hunters and anglers, that we bear this burden. We're happy to do it, but the rest of America needs to get in the game too. This is the way that they do that. Um, the, the Recovering America's Wildlife Act would provide the funding um, on an annual basis to spread out to the state uh, fish and wildlife agencies to implement the plans that they already have. They're called wildlife action plans to recover these species of greatest conservation needs. So they don't need to develop new plans. These plans are on the books. They have to be updated every 10 years. They're just not funded. So what this would do is actually fund the, the, the state wildlife agencies and tribal wildlife agencies to go recover those species. And the way that this would happen is it would go through the same kind of um, filter as a Pittman-Robertson funding does, you know, they have the system set up, so it will go through that. Um, of course, it will, remain, it will remain separate. So it's not like it will replace Pittman-Robertson funding. It will add to it. In a lot of states, it will be roughly equal to slightly more per year than Pittman-Robertson comes in. So we're talking about literally doubling the amount of wildlife conservation funding that state and tribal fish and wildlife agencies currently have access to. So if you're looking for a game changer for wildlife conservation, this is probably the biggest thing in at least the last 50 years. And that includes things like 
the Great Americans Out Great American Outdoors Act that that all of our groups worked to pass last year, and and you know the John D. Dingle Conservation Management and Recreation Act of the year before. This kind of builds on that, um, but but it's really a game changer for wildlife conservation. Um, and once again, all it takes from the average listener, the average hunter, the average angler, is that phone call to your senator and to your US representative asking them to not just vote for this bill, but asking them to co-sponsor this bill. Because it's, it's a standalone bill right now, it's not attached to any big package. We need it to get momentum. It's a genuinely bipartisan bill right now, the Senate version of the bill. Um, I, I don't know the exact number right now that have co-sponsored it, but the first 25 were exactly 12 Republicans, 12 Democrats, and one independent. Those are the first 25 senators that, that co-sponsored this bill. Um, so you have a genuinely bipartisan backing for this bill, but it has to have the momentum and the, and the numbers of co-sponsors for the leaderships of both parties really to advance it and say, yep, it's enough of, prior, of a priority that we'll hold the hearings that we need to on it and we're gonna put this up for a vote. Um, so really that's it. Call your congressman, call your senator, tell them to co-sponsor the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. If you don't mind, I would like to espouse two points to that wonderful pulpit moment that you had. First, for the, um, for the non-hunter, non-fisher, fisherman, fisher person, uh, that just in general likes to look at wildlife. This is a no-brainer to support, right? Because we're, we're working towards helping non-game species. Right. So there's no hunting or anything like that involved in any of this stuff uh, to the hunter or angler that might think this isn't the game species. Uh, this isn't something that's going to put food on my table. Why should I care? Because we when we do if this would get approved and we have the funding and the projects get put on the landscape, it's going to benefit the game species. Right. Um, oftentimes what benefits one species is going to benefit many, many other species. So let's think about this holistically. My second point is for those hunters, uh, for those hunters and anglers. Us modern hunter conservationists, modern angler conservationists, we like to espouse this great thing that we do. Uh, that was passed back in 1937 and then in, in, in the 1950s. Uh, I don't know about you, Drew, but that was way before my lifetime, right? <laughs> you know, um, this is sort of our generation's chance to make a lasting impact, positive impact on conservation. A lot of the great things that were done were done, you know, almost 100 years ago. Um, it's time for our generation to step up and actually put our money where our mouth is, you know, that like put one foot in front of the other and, and make this happen. And the way to make that happen, while, as you said, you know, there's been a couple recent bills that have been passed, which are, which have been great. This, like you said, when you're talking about doubling the funding for uh, fishing game, you know, state agencies, come on now. Th this is a no brainer for the average citizen in any given state. Um, let's make those phone calls. Let's make this happen let's require our politicians to do good work in, in conservation and make 
make conservation twice as good as it is currently in America, which is really, really good, but twice is always better. <laughs> well, well, not only that, but I, and maybe it's the circle I surround myself with, the, the hunters and anglers that, that I have surrounded myself with from these conservation organizations that I've joined. Um, I don't know any who only care about the game species that they hunt. You know, when I'm up at my, my cabin in the Upper Peninsula, my family's cottage, um, I'm really focused on fishing for northern pike. But it's not a complete experience if I don't hear a loon call at dusk or dawn. Um, it's not a complete experience if the bald eagle doesn't fly above me a few times. Um, those are species that would be helped by the Recovered America's Wildlife Act. Um, you know, common loons, uh, you know, ha have, have some trouble in their range um, from mul multiple factors. This is a type of thing that could fund, for instance, monitoring, banding stations, um, finding out where they go. Um, different states have different species of conservation need that they've identified. That's the one that I that I think of because it's the one that I've, I've been hearing, you know, every time I go up there since I was a kid. And, and those are the ones that, that I think of like complete the outdoor experience when I'm out there, you know, fishing for Northern Pike, Northern Pike are doing fine. They don't need this, but, but the Eagles do and, and the loons do. And, and that's, that's what I think of. Yeah. Well said then. Hey, Drew, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. And, um, I can't wait to see what next film is going to be coming out. <laughs> We're, we start filming next week. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we'll be looking forward to it. Thanks, Drew. All right. Thanks, Jason. Bye. Before we keep going, a real quick question for you. Are you concerned with urban sprawl? Are you concerned with the threat of our increased human presence as put on wildlife and wild spaces? If so, an easy next step for you to try to help with this situation is to visit our Patreon page and become a monthly supporter. If you like this podcast, if you would like to help form a new nonprofit that helps combat and mitigate the effects of urbanization, visit patreon.com slash conserve the wild that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash conserve the wild go visit today and become a sponsor and that'll do it for today's episode i want to thank drew i want to thank you all for listening uh, this was a great conversation drew is a great guy um you know Someone that I connected with, of all things, you know, it seems like I'm connecting with a lot of these people through social media. Uh, that's the good power of social media. And uh, we need to, to keep getting together as outdoorsmen and, and environmentalists and people that are, that are interested in conservation. We need to get together and we need to talk more and connect more. Uh, if you haven't watched the film Against the Current, I highly suggest you do. There's a link for it down in the episode details make sure that you give it a, a watch it, it 
is just filled with some absolutely tremendous information and it's very eye-opening uh, especially for someone like me that you know it, it hasn't affected um, any fishing that I do because I don't fish uh, but even you know in a lot of Pennsylvania we don't really have a lot of issue with carp and uh, as of you know not nearly as much of an issue as you know around the Mississippi River uh, area and and advancing up into Indiana um, you know, so if you're not familiar with these invasive carp and really the big threat that it, that it has on, um, you know, more than just the fishing industry and more than just the natural balance of these lakes and rivers and streams, uh, but also tourism and people's livelihoods, uh, give that film a listen. And then as you heard at that last pulpit moment, Drew talking about uh, recovering America's Wildlife Act, contact your house uh, representative, contact your senator, let them know how you stand on this act and that you are in support of this act. Uh, if you want to read more about it, there's another link down there in the episode details that you can go ahead and click on that to, to read why it is so important. But contact your politicians and let them know that this is an important act and they need to uh, co-sign. They need to support it. They need to you know, vote yes for this act. Until next week, when I know all of you have contacted your politicians, get outside, take someone with you, and as always, stay wild. What, what they see is actually that they'll be able to survive in the Great Lakes, um, especially within the near shore areas. They'll be able to make their way within about seven miles of the coast. They'll have enough habitat and food to be able to kind of move around. Um, they spawn in, in river systems with the right kind of current. And they found that those river systems exist in enough places, you know, that flow into the Great Lakes that they'll be able to make their way around.